I am in the book of Amos this morning. If you want to turn there, if you don't know where Amos is, I just say open your Bible in the center and just start turning pages to the left, okay? You'll eventually get there. Uh, it's before Obadiah and Jonah, but it's after Daniel and Ezekiel, and then the books we've studied the last couple of weeks, Hosea and Joel. We're glad to have all of you here today, met some guests, and uh, if you're looking for a church body to be a part of, we're praying specifically that God will lead you where you should be, and that that will be a place where you can grow, where you can be encouraged, where you can be an encourager in your walk with Christ, as well as a place where you can use the gifts God's given you and the way that God has wired you to help that body become everything that he's intended for it to be. Now, I think we're unique here in, in this church in that we're teaching God's word one book at a time. I'm not going to do that with Amos today because Amos is a book of judgment, okay? And, uh, and a lot, many of the themes are repeated over and over again, but I'm amazed that there's no way I can teach Amos in one day. In fact, much of the stuff that I really wanted to get to in my spirit, I won't get to till, till next week. So, the book of Amos, giving you lots of time. Some of you have a word of fresh bread on your heart you'd like to share this morning, something God's been teaching you. All right. Don't have to. Because I have lots of words today. Are you there? Pages have all turned. It was nice to hear all your Bibles getting to the book of Amos. A couple of things just to point out in chapter 1, verse 1. Do you see there that Amos wants all hearing to know that he is not a professional prophet? And I put professional in quotations, okay? This is not his vocation. He wants us to know this. He's simply a shepherd from Tekoa. You see that? Small town about 10 miles to the south of, of Jerusalem. That's where he's from, just a shepherd, a simple man. Yet we can connect him to Luke in this. He's a champion for the underdog. He's a defender of the oppressed, and he's a voice for the poor. In fact, if I were to choose a key verse for this book, I would choose Amos chapter 5, verse 24. Look what it says. Yeah, get there. Awesome. I never put the context of the main book on the PowerPoint because I want you doing what you're doing right there. So it's awesome. I want you to hear from God, not from this guy on the stage. Okay, that's what's important. So in chapter 5, verse 24, he says, But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. And I think you'll see this as we go on from here, but it's generally believed, just an interesting point, that the full length of Amos' ministry was only about two years, okay? So when you hear minor prophet, it's not because of a lack of significance. It has more to do with the length of the writing. And Amos only, only preached about two years, yet here he is in the scriptures, okay? So he's preaching these, sometime between 760 and 750 
B.C. A couple other things to notice there in verse 1. Uzziah is king in the south, and if you know the book of Isaiah, you know that he writes in chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. It's a point of reference, so it's very likely that these two guys, Amos and Isaiah, were contemporaries. Hosea, whom we studied, also would have been a contemporary, and Joel, who we concluded last week. I thought we'd do that book in one week, and it took three. Awesome, awesome stuff. Uh, he would have been long gone at this point, okay? Now, I've been mentioning some kings. So uh, Uzziah is king of the southern kingdom. Jeroboam II is king of the northern kingdom. It's a divided kingdom at this point. Uh, thanks to failed kings like Rehoboam, okay? It's a divided kingdom. Guy raising the taxes because he wants to get rich off the backs of the people. So these are the kind of things that we just see right there in verse 1 of the book. Okay, now I need you to go over to chapter 7. I said we weren't going to do this verse by verse. Chapter 7, and I want you to notice there the name Amaziah. Do you see that? All right, total contradiction to Amos. This guy is, is a professional priest. This guy is a highly educated priest. He ministers there at Bethel, and he doesn't want anything to do with Amos, and he doesn't want Amos's preaching around here. So his message to Amos is get out of town, go to the northern kingdom, and he thinks that Amos is just doing it for the money, so he says go make your money off the backs of the people up there in the northern kingdom. Frankly, he's quite threatened by Amos's ministry because Amos is preaching with an authority that the people had never seen before. So look at Amos, okay? Amos, the, uh, the shepherd, okay? The, the uneducated. Look at his response to Amaziah. This is uh, chapter 7, verse 14. I had you to turn to 12 to see Amaziah, but look at verse 14. Amos responding. I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord... It's not about him. It's about the Lord. You see that? But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, <clears throat> you priest, you person of a false system, hear the word of the Lord. And it's important to see that this is not about Amos. This is about God's commissioning, God's word in Amos' uh, mouth. So it's the uneducated prophet who is being faithful to speak the things of God while the person of education and position in organized religion doesn't want anything to have to do with the things of God. That is so important. It's a theme that's played out again and again throughout history. This is the way it is in the kingdom of God. God called Moses, who was slow in speech, to become one of the greatest prophets of all times. God reduced Gideon's army to simply 300 in order to take on 100,000 Midianites. <laughs> Jesus didn't go after the people who were chosen by the rabbis, and he didn't go after the people in the religious system of the day. Instead, he chose fishermen and the uneducated. And we can go on and on with examples of how God uses the foolish things in the world's eyes to confound the wise in, in the world's eyes. It is the religious elite always. It was the religious elite who were Jesus' 
strongest and greatest opponents. It was the religious elite who were responsible for the death of Jesus. Here's some more contemporary examples. D.L. Moody, when he began to preach, people were saying of him, what can an uneducated shoe salesman possibly have to tell us? Hmm? And what does history tell us about the man D.L. Moody? Same way with Billy Sunday. Began his evangelism campaigns and people of the church were saying, what does a baseball player possibly think he can teach us? Okay, so it's this whole avoidance of, of arrogance in the kingdom of God because God does use the foolish things of the world uh, to confound the wise. He doesn't choose us in spite of our humble circumstances. He doesn't choose us in spite of our humble circumstances. He chooses us because of our humble circumstances. And the more humble and the more broken we are, the greater the opportunity we are for God and God's business. Frankly, when I first heard the name of the prophet Amos as a young believer, you know, I'd been discipled on television, right? And on Hostess Cupcakes, Twinkies, and Ding Dong commercials. Yeah, and, uh, and I heard the name of this prophet, Amos, and I was like, you got to be kidding. A prophet named Amos? That doesn't sound authoritative. Sounds like a hick, you know, from out in Arkansas somewhere. Oh, I didn't mean to slam Arkansas. <laughs> somewhere, yeah, not, not, even, not even in the south, somewhere out there. Because <laughs> the man who can tame the tongue is perfect in all his ways. Oh, Lord, have mercy on my soul. <laughs> I spent my honeymoon in Arkansas, okay? If that helps you any, okay? <laughs> oh, dear. Now, you can come back at me with Italian jokes if you want to. <laughs> uh, but uh, we know that, that somehow this, this simple man received some training somewhere because his writing styles show great complexities, and I'm not going to take a lot of time to point those out, but we'll see at least one of them in our teaching today as the Lord leads us. So what we need to do by way of application is we need to let the prophet Amos serve as a reminder to us as, as one point in all of this that God uses ordinary people just like you and me to do his greatest business. Okay, that is so important that we get this. It's obedient, not your education, not your skills, not your personality. That is the greatest measure of a faithful in individual. So the question goes to you, it goes to me. How are you doing in being faithful with the things that God has called you to? And I can't make a statement like this without having us read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, starting with verse 26 together. So would you read this passage in unison with me, understanding what it is that God wants you to hear and what he wants me to hear this morning. Let's read it together. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. 
It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Got nothing on my own to offer you, but only him. At the time of Amos's ministry, contrary to where some places we've been in studying the minor prophets, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdoms are prospering. They're doing incredibly well. Under the leadership of, of Jeroboam, Jeroboam I, they've been able to gain some major ground. In fact, under his leadership, they've, uh, they've gained major access routes, such as the Transjordan King's Highway and, and the Way of the Sea. So here they are. This tells us that they become, uh, they have access, and not only access, but leadership on the major trade routes that in the region there, and that they're at peace at their neighbors, peace with their neighbors. So what we could say here is that the people of Israel, both the northern and southern kingdoms, they're living the, the good life at this point. And though they have reached an all-time high, socially, militarily, economically, and on and on we can go, Frankly, they've reached an all-time low in their spiritual condition. All right, just some examples here. Idolatry at this point is quite rampant. The poor are being oppressed, and we talked about that a little bit. The courts are corrupt. Uh, there's widespread immorality. But they're prospering. And so the attitude is, we have special favor with God. And so rather than being concerned about the relationship with God, they're just sitting in this thing feeling blessed, thinking it's just going to last forever. And what they don't realize is that it's, about, it's all about to come to an end. And, you know, right then, we're there we could talk about our nation, our own country. Where are we in our prosperity? And then measure that with our relationship with God. So Joel's message becomes one of judgment, but it's very important to understand what that judgment is rooted in because in the organized church, particularly in the West, we have suggested that it's rooted in some other things than what the scriptures want us to understand, okay? So I just need to walk through this with you briefly. Go back to chapter 1, okay? And uh, here in chapter 1, starting with verse 3 to chapter 2, verse 3, we see judgment against the neighbors of the people of Israel, judgment against the heathen nations, okay? So if you go to chapter 1, 3 there, you see there's an indictment against Damascus. Then you go to verse 6, an indictment against Gaza. Then you get to verse 9, Tyra, verse 11, Edom, verse 13, Ammon, and chapter 2, verse 1, Moab. Now we get to chapter 2, verse 4, and the judgment turns, and I put this in quotes, to the people of God. I mean, just when the people of God are thinking, yeah, way to go, Amos. Let those heathens have it. <laughs> it's like, now it's your turn. Okay, and this is what he has here in, in verse 4 against Judah and verse 6, Israel. Now, I want to show you what those uh, issues are in just a moment. But first, there's something else I need to point out uh, with you, and that's... Uh, Eight times you find the statement in those verses I just mentioned that goes like this, for three sins, even four. In each of these instances, you see that? Okay, this is one of those um, 
writing principles I was talking to you about, one of those structural things that shows that Amos is not all that ignorant, that we can't assume that based on his name or the fact that he's a shepherd. And what this suggests to us here is that not only does God have enough cause to take action against these nations, which three is always a strong argument, but he has more than enough against them. Okay, very important. Now, getting rid of all our religious jargon, let's look at what the issues are that are at hand, what the judgments are concerning. Okay, so going back to verse 3. Okay, Damascus. They've been mistreating others, specifically the people at Gilead. Verse 6, they're taking others captive. This is about forced slavery. Okay, verse 9, they're selling people. This is human trafficking. Okay, verse 11, there's a lack of compassion and hatred. Verse 13, or I said that one. Oh, no, 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 I didn't say that. Verse 13, abuse and murder. And then chapter 2, verse 1, we see disrespect for the dead and for those in positions of authority. And as I was writing that, I was thinking it would be like someone going and digging up the remains of JFK and then putting his remains on public display as kind of a mockery. That would offend us, and this is what's happening here. The reason we need to see this is because every one of these indictments is an evidence that they are breaking the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Put aside all the rules the church may try to impose because this is the one thing that God wants people to be about. Love your neighbor the same way you need your neighbor to love you. Love your neighbor the same way you need God to love you and show compassion to you. All right, now, the judgments against God's people are a little bit different here, and I need you to see those. Okay, so now we go uh, to chapter 2, verse 4, and we see there, this is talking to the southern kingdom of Judah, and they're rejecting God's law, And they're running after false gods, which is rooted in the very first commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So to the religious people, he starts off with, are you loving me? Truly, not all your religious activity, and we'll see that more next week. And then uh, we get to chapter 2, verse 6, and we see the northern kingdom it says there, it makes this uh, kind of like a sub-point that they are totally unrighteous. Okay, do you see that there? 2 verse 6, totally unrighteous. And this is what that total unrighteousness looks like. They're selling the needy into slavery instead of helping them. They're trampling on the heads of the poor. They're denying justice to the oppressed. Do you see what's going on here? Huh? Yeah. They're they're sexually perverted. There's abuse going on. They're using what they had taken from the poor and and taking it into worship with them. And then they're not listening to God's voices. They're not listening 
to the prophets. So again, what we see here is that much of what God has not only against the heathen nations, but also against the people of God is rooted in breaking the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And what do we learn from this? A couple of things. First, from the fact that God pronounces a judgment against these heathen nations, we learn that God is the supreme ruler of all people. And all people will eventually give account to the Lord God. Benjamin Franklin at this constitutional convention, when they got to a dead end as to how to proceed in writing the foundational truths that would guide our nation, gave us this statement. He said, I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs the affairs of men. We will all give account. But the second thing is that the people of God will also be be held accountable for God as to whether they just participated in a form of religion or whether they truly knew the living God, which only has one evidence, and that evidence is in how we treat others. Oh God, may we be in the business of loving people the way that we ourselves would like to be loved. May we be in the business of serving others the way that we sometimes wish people would be considerate of us. Okay, this is the kind of stuff that God wants us to know right here. God has given us people as difficult as they may be (laughs) as an opportunity to show his love. Amen? In fact, this would be a good time to turn to your neighbor and just tell that neighbor, you're my greatest opportunity to show God's love. (laughs) Why don't you do that right now? (laughs) And I get to talk to all of you. You're my greatest opportunity to show God's love. (laughs) And by the way, you all look beautiful today. I know that when we deal with judgment passages, it can be very very tough, but there's so much good news in the midst of this, of who God is. And your faces look beautiful this morning, um, despite the fact that we're in this minor prophet, and uh, you're engaged, so it's a wonderful thing to know that God is speaking into your lives and that you're receiving what he has to say, despite the person who happens to be on stage. Yeah. Or because of the person who happens to be. Didn't I say God will use us not in spite of our weaknesses, but uh, because of them? Yeah, there you go. Let's get that straight. Well, as we said, so much of the book of Amos has to do with, with judgments. And so much of those judgments are rooted in the first and second commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Depending on uh, where you are in the book and who wrote that statement. Uh, heart, soul, strength. Heart soul and mind, okay, these kind of things, but it's all-encompassing, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love the Lord your God this, this way. Love your neighbor as yourself, but frankly, it's easy to go around saying, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and God says, the only way I will know that's true is in the way that you love your neighbor. So this is God's righteous standard, and this is what we have to be about, and there are some amazing things in Amos that, that nail this down a little further, but we're going to have to get to that later, so, um, but we're going to press on. I want you to go to chapter 3 now, and just a quick statement I need you to see in chapter 3, and then we'll be on to chapter 4, okay? Love to hear those pages 
turning, okay? So beginning in chapter 3, there's this largely emphatic statement that the reason people suffer in our world is because they have removed themselves from the position of blessing. Did you hear me, what I said? The, the reason, there's an, a message here that the reason people suffer is because they've removed themselves from God's blessing. Okay, now, that doesn't mean we go around with the message that the reason you're suffering is because you're not in God's blessing. What that says is we live in a fallen world where bad things happen to good people, okay? So, it's, it's not God's plan. I was with a preacher this week who said, it's God's will that I suffer. And I was like, oh my goodness, there's my God, the Lord of all suffering. No, that's not his intended plan. And I'm, I'm not going to believe that. Now, in a fallen world, bad things happen to good people. And can God redeem those bad things and use them for a greater good? Yes, but not, let's not say glory to God for sickness, okay? We can say, I trust you. I don't know what you can possibly bring about from this thing, but I trust you. And so this is kind of the message that God wants to bless us, but when, we, when we're fallen or in a fallen state, his blessings become limited, okay? But in the midst of this, there's a statement here, and, and maybe you don't agree on that, because obviously a preacher said that the other day, and of, of the evangelical genre. So, uh, I don't want Alan. Uh, Could we please never sing, "Praise God, the God of all suffering"? Okay, is that all right with you? All right, good. Regardless of whether we all agree, uh, God's put me in a position here so I can make that call. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Chapter 3, verse 7. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophet. I wanted you to see that, the prophets. I wanted you to see this uh, because when it comes time to considering God's judgment, judgments, no one can say, all this took me off guard. Okay, because God's saying, are you listening to my voices? Are you listening to those that I put in place to let you know who I am and what's going to happen? Okay? So none of us can stand before God and say, oh, wow, I didn't know, or I kind of forgot that part. Okay? Listen to the voice of the Lord. Read the scriptures. Listen to the people who are teaching the scriptures and hear what God has to say. Okay, that's enough of that. Now I want to go to chapter 4, and I want to show you this litany. Okay? This is showing, essentially a situation where people are not being blessed because they're not walking with the Lord, okay? So this litany goes like this, and I'm just going to summarize it, so you'll have to follow along. I'm not reading it verbatim. Chapter 4, verse 6, God says, I gave you empty stomachs, and yet you have not returned to me. Uh, verses 7 and 8, I withheld rain, yet you have not returned to me. Verse 9, I struck your gardens and your vineyards. You have the line yet? Can you say it with me? Yet you have not returned to me. Chapter 4, verse 10, I sent plagues among you. Let's say it together. Yet you have not returned to me. Removing oneself from God's blessings. He says, come back to me. 
Come back to the position of blessing. Verse 11, I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's talking about fire and these kinds of things. And then we get to the statement that Susanna Wesley is known for, use, for, for using when her boy, John, was rescued from the second story of their home by a human ladder. Uh, guys getting on top of each, each other's shoulders just before the house collapsed in flame. And it's uh, this statement here. Uh, you were like a burning stick snatched from the fire. And that's how she defined her son. A burning stick snatched from the fire. And then the same statement again. Would you say it with me? Yet you have not returned to me. And what we need to see here is this. God loves to do life with his creation. Did you hear that? God loves to do life with his creation. And not only does God love to do life with his creation, God loves to bless his creation. But his presence and his blessing are exactly that. It's in his presence that we experience his blessing. And so God's desire is that we come home that we return home, that we put aside all the arguments against God and we simply recognize our need for him. So right here is where I felt the Lord compelled me that I need to slow down a little bit. What does it mean to return to the Lord? The prophet Isaiah put it this way. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the evil man's thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy. God will have mercy on him. And to our God for he will freely pardon. So to return to the Lord means a change of mind. First off. A change of mind toward God. It's to acknowledge that we have thought wrongly about who God is, what God is about. We thought wrongly about sin. We thought wrongly about life. And now we want to stop arguing about what God has already spoken through his voices in the word of God. And we want to say, Lord, I want to start learning from you. So it's a change of mind. This is repentance, okay? But it's not only a change of mind, it's a change of direction. It's like, God, I realize that I've been calling my own shots, living life my way with very little regard from you, except on occasion and just for a good feeling. But Lord, I want to start living with you, doing life with you, and I want to start being about your business. Okay? This is what this is about. Change of mind, change of direction. I'm coming home. Uh, the other day at, at breakfast, we were talking to a young man about uh, the Word of God and about his faith and, and uh, what it means to have a relationship with God. And he gave me that answer that I've heard so many times. Someday, I'll get serious about God, but not yet. Okay? But you notice what God says here? Seek the Lord while he may be found. We think life is going to go on forever and ever, and God says, hey, I'm here right now, so come home when it's good. Okay, come home before I have to come. Okay, get ready for my coming. Okay, and we'll see that again in, in just a moment. But there's three things in Amos that describe for us why God wants us to come home. And so now I need to point those out and uh, we'll begin to bring this to a close. Chapter 5, verse 4. Do you see what he says there? 
He says, seek me and live. See, the real reason that God wants us to come home is because he planned a life for you, a life of abundance and fullness that the enemy has tricked you and said, God's denying you of something. And he says, come home and experience the real reason for which I created you. This is why Jesus says uh, that the thief comes. <clears throat> oh, there's my puberty coming out again. That's why I was a youth pastor for so many years. <laughs> Just couldn't get through that period of life. It's the only way to experience the kind of life. So John 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. <clears throat> I, was, I was at a, a wedding yesterday, and I saw an old friend from Greeley. And I had to go say hello. And uh, somehow, he just started weeping and telling me about my friend, his son, who, when my friend's daughter was born, told his dad, a very successful businessman, my daughter will never ride in your car again as long as you're drinking alcohol. And he went home and fell on his face before God and dug he was delivered that night. Yeah. yeah. He wants to come and share a story with us, and I, I think I'd like to have that. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come. Doug shared his testimony last week of how the devourer had hold of him and their marriage. The second reason that God wants us to seek the Lord and live is in these words in chapter 5, verse 5. God says, do not seek Bethel. Did you hear me mention Bethel just a moment ago? Bethel represents a false system of, of worship. Okay, And God says, don't seek false systems of worship because the only way you're ever going to really experience the kind of blessings that I have planned for you is when you're truly seeking me. Okay? So what this would be like, I mean, these people are going to Bethel to find God, and they get all excited about their journey to God, but they come home further away from God than when they left, okay? And the, and the best image I can have is people who say, we're going to Rocky Mountain National Park to get close to God. Well, aren't you something, huh? Yeah. Through all your human effort, you're going to feel close to God. God is where you are, experiencing where you are. He doesn't want you seeking after false systems of religion. He doesn't want you to worship his creation. He wants you to know him, the creator of all things. This is the heart of God. And then the third reason is uh, verse 6. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour. And look at this. And Bethel will have no one to quench it. In other words, that false religious system isn't going to help you one bit. So God says the reason to seek him is to get ready for judgment. And you say, well, that doesn't sound like a very noble reason to come home to God just to avoid judgment. Well, it's a reason God gives. He doesn't want to condemn you. He wants to bless you. And so the question comes down to this. Do I want to live as close to God in his blessings as imaginable, or do I want to just keep pushing it away? Okay, and that's what this is about. Come home, seek the Lord, and live. Okay, well, I said we'd come back to the righteous standard. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. First 
and greatest command, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. We'll come back to that next week. But I have to close with chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Are you concerned about the times we're living in? Anybody? Does, Does anybody here get the sense that our nation's greatest times are behind us. Okay, now, I don't want to be a doomsayer, and I am not making a projection by any means here. But suppose things begin to get really bad. Okay? Suppose. What would God have us to do? And that's what these verses are about. These verses are about practical application. Because listen, you've heard all that teaching about Revelation and the end times, and you've made the decision maybe in your mind, no matter what happens, I'm not going to deny Jesus. Okay, so you're like Peter there. I won't deny you, Lord. Even though everybody else falls away, I'm not going to deny you. Okay, so it's a vain promise because you don't know who you are, right? But what if beyond ourselves? We were to think, if things get really bad, could the Lord strengthen me to be a blessing to the people suffering around me? Kind of like a Corey Ten Boom, who in the concentration camps was giving life to fellow prisoners. How can I be that person? And, and some of you are saying, I don't even want to go there. I just want to know how to get by. But God wants to empower you to be strength in times of struggle, to be light in times of darkness, to be hope in times of despair. And that's why we have these verses, okay? So now I want you to see them. Therefore, oh, did I tell you the verse 13, chapter 5? Therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. In other words, The wise man, the prudent man, has learned to quiet his spirit in the presence of God. So rather than getting all caught up in the panic, okay? And and honestly, I I wasn't trying this method of communion today. I just wanted to see if this could contribute to worship this morning. And yet I sense panic on some of your faces as to whether you were doing it right, okay? And that's my nature, this Italian in me. Have no fear. Be still in the presence of God. And I'm not thinking of anybody specific. It's just my heart as a pastor that I want to give life in every circumstance, okay? So therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you. And look at this statement, so familiar to the church, just as you say he is. Huh? Not just say it, but he's really with you. Hate evil. Love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. So there it says that he's specifically talking to the people, the Jews. But this is God's character, it's his nature. Perhaps God will have mercy 
on all who call on him. Now, right there in that list, it sounds an awful lot like a to-do list. And so some of us are going to be out there on a mission to, to accomplish those things. But those things, frankly, remind us of how far from God we really are. So that's why we have this one application in this church. And what is that application? Yeah. Oh, except by the grace of God, go I. Live that way in humble dependence upon him, not in this cocky arrogance of what you're going to do for God, but humble dependence. Would you just take a moment between you and God? Consider why he brought you here. Consider what he wants you to know and what he would have you do. It's going to be quiet, but consider these things. This is the word of God.